1: That's right, listener, welcome to episode 221 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like a holocron filled with the messages of old, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities... Mr. Nathan P. Butler.
0: What? Huh? I'm awake. What? What? Oh. Oh. Hello. It's been a long week, but I'm awake. I promise.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's been my week, man. Like two hours here, a half hour there. <laughs> oh
0: man. Well, we're we are in what's referred to by, uh, for teachers as pre-planning. The students actually start on Monday. But this week is all sort of the setup what has been happening is that because our teams have gotten so large and so many people are trying to have meetings in the county pretty much at the exact same time. um, It turns out that the only place where we could hold our meetings for four out of five days of this week, the one other day being when family was down. So that was kind of exhausting. um, But those four days, the meeting was basically in morning traffic, approximately a two hour commute. Just in the the Atlanta metro area to get from one side of it to the other, all mm-hmm. four days. So I'm kind of like, I'm I'm sluggish, but I think some uh, some Beyond the Films feedback talk might actually get my brain going again.
1: Yeah, because yeah, road weary. That's a definite fog.
0: <laughs> I'm like, huh? Uh, every everything I read feels like it's green and white letters. It's all signs everywhere.
1: Yeah. Ah. Uh. star wars beyond the films we ask the tough questions questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on you ponder about star wars and so do we this episode we address your ponders your questions once more you are the star and we have a Sith ton of feedback. Ain't that right, Nathan? We do. So much so because it's been a while since we've done a feedback
0: episode. We've been having a little bit of trouble making sure we keep up with the uh, the episodes we want to do on new releases and such. That we basically had feedback when I went into the feedback folder going back to uh, the middle part of early 2016. So what I've done is sort of culled it down to a handful coming from several different people uh, to give us some uh, good points for discussion, good points to jump off with here. Uh, Going back about, uh, what, a year, give or take. I want to say the first one for sure goes back to September, and then we've got uh, one that goes back a little bit further to July that we may or may not wind up having time for. So trying to get a little bit caught up, but this will hopefully clean the slate. So if we do one of these again soon, Then we can use some newer feedback, perhaps, that is inspired by people hearing this and realizing they can get their feedback on the show and sending in new stuff. Excellent. The
1: real meat and potatoes of the feedback. Well, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. that's right. Those
0: potatoes are loaded and mashed. Okay, Um, so we have one here coming in first from Nicholas Reigert, and he says, Mark and Nathan. After listening to your 200th, nice big exclamation point behind that, episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films, I thought it appropriate for me to finally contact you both and offer my sincere gratitude for the hard work and dedication you put into this whole endeavor. I recently graduated from college, and until I can land a job applicable to my math slash computer science degree, have been working long days on a farm, plenty of time to listen to podcasts discussing the universe I enjoy so thoroughly. Like many others, I began dabbling in the Star Wars EU as soon as I could read. In the late 90s, I used to curl up next to my dad as a wide-eyed five-year-old and listen to him read the Jedi Apprentice stories out loud, though my father, more a Star Trek fan, does not seem to remember this. The thrill that these narratives provided supplemented my fandom through the prequel era, and before long, I was hooked on whatever Star Wars adult fiction I could get my hands on. Whether keeping up with the current adventures of Luke, like Mark, these were my favorites, or delving into the heavy backlog of other Legends novels, the X-Wing series was another early standout for my early reading days, I truly had fun growing up in the galaxy far, far away. Again, like many others, I was initially dismayed at the Legends announcement a few years back. However, also being a community-driven fan like you both, Nathan especially, I quickly realized that the canon wipe was definitely the best option moving forward. I'm both curious and excited to see what Lucasfilm slash Disney has in store for us in the story group canon. And in my opinion, so much the better that it does not have to dance around Legends events. Like Mark, I am prone to bipolar moments. Most of the time, I'm fine with the current situation, but every once in a while, I sit back and realize gloomily that we'll never get to see the aftermath, no pun intended, of Legend's last few novels. Jason, Jaina, Jag, Mara, Ben, Koran. I held all these characters close to my heart, and while some of them receive satisfying ends to their arcs, it still eats me up inside that some will not. I admire your optimism regarding Legend's continuing mark, but I have to side with Nathan in believing that the timeline will ultimately be left dangling. Still... I certainly have no reservations continuing on into the new canon timeline. Having arrived relatively late on the scene for Legends, I regarded completionism as an incredibly daunting task. Don't take this as an endorsement of the so-called accessibility stories that were churned out in the later years of Legends. I found these self-contained stories as frustrating as you guys did. However, the canon wipe has allowed me to stay completely up-to-date with story group canon material and retain the title among my friends as the Star Wars guy, the one to go to with whatever questions anyone might have regarding lore and or continuity. While my vast knowledge of the Legends universe always made me feel relatively isolated in my fandom, no one in my schools or college classes would have even had the slightest idea of who Darth Kytus even is, Star Wars Beyond the Films exposed me to two guys with the same amount of passion Okay, you guys easily beat me out. For the Star Wars universe that I feel day in and day out. With your brief hiatus these past few months, I've immensely enjoyed listening to your backlog of episodes and even followed you both to your work on Rebels Roundtable and, to a degree, Republic Forces Radio Network. I've listened to other Star Wars podcasts, but this is the first where I've just clicked with the hosts so well. I find myself agreeing with your opinions, Star Wars or not, most of the time, and greatly appreciate the attention you give to continuity within the greater universe. Now, having heard that the state of your personal fandoms is slightly wavering, I wanted to take the time to let you both know how much Star Wars Beyond the Films has positively affected my own fandom this past summer. Never have I felt the need to write in to any of those other Star Wars podcasts and thank them for their work. Yet, with the both of you, I want to do whatever I can to make sure that you understand how much your time and effort is appreciated by your audience. The sheer amount of feedback you guys receive, judging by all those feedback episodes I've made my way through, should be an indication enough. However... I also submit myself as key evidence. Your work continues to find Star Wars fans out there and give them a sense of community that they may never have experienced before. Let the alt-legends movement continue being the jerks that they so vehemently seem intent on being. Know that most of us listeners out here are immensely grateful for your contribution to Star Wars and the community in general. It would not be the same without you. Best... Nick Reigert from Beaverton, Oregon. Nice! Says, maybe we're neighbors, Mark. <laughs> P.S. I know you guys probably get show requests from all over the place, but I have to put in my two cents and suggest an episode, or at least part of one, on Twilight Company. I've been trying to get into the military for quite some time now. Unfortunately, childhood asthma is quite the deal-breaker on this front, so I naturally consider this book one of my personal favorites of the new canon. If you should head back into Legends first, though, I'm completely on board with you guys finally hitting the new Jedi Order. Here's to 200 more episodes. And yes, we did finally hit twilight company after this email came in thanks for writing in nick uh mark why don't you take this one first
1: yeah yeah it's awesome having an oregon fan uh in fact uh find the uh, oregon star wars fans group that i've created on facebook uh there's i know there's more of us out there and thanks for the uh, congratulations on 200 episodes uh the fact that you know you felt the need to contact us that's awesome it's, it's great hearing from you other fans like we always say with the facebook aspect it is our number one way of interacting with you guys and it's the interactions that definitely make it worth keep doing it, you know, and there are a lot of shows and episodes we plan to do down the road. Like people are ki- constantly asking, you know, are we ever going to do new Jedi order episodes? And of course I totally want to do that, you know, but like I tell everybody, like when we get to that, I want to do it right. You know, I want to bring in someone else as well, get, get a third opinion. Like what we did when we had uh Pete Morrison on back when we talked about the, uh, the Bane novels and stuff and, and the uh, Plagueis uh, when we were talking on the Sith stuff. Uh, but that, that, added person with the the just we all loved it so much and that episode just, it's one of my favorite episodes and it's one of our first ones too, like it came away so strong because I don't know, we just really jumped into it and I want to kind of bring that back in that regard when we get to those type of series Uh, and I want to ask you real quick because you mentioned the fact that your dad was reading you the uh, Jedi Apprentice books, which I've I've read to my kids, did you guys ever get far enough into, say, uh, Jedi Quest which was uh, when Obi-Wan and Anakin were together and then even further with the last Jedi, or the last of the Jedi, which uh, was Ferris Olin oh man, that, that whole Jude Watson line was just awesome. Great story. Way, way interconnected. It's really a hidden gem because it's like a kid's book. So it doesn't really fall on many of the timelines. People don't realize how many of them are. I mean, there's like 20 plus books in that series and it's three series, but they are basically one giant series. It's glorious. So if you haven't checked them out, I definitely suggest you do. Uh, and and the aspect of the bipolarness and, and the going back and forth, man, I still struggle with that. You know, I, I, I maintain the optimism, but I know in the pit of my heart that that there is probably no chance in hell it's ever going to happen. But I just keep a little candle burning down there because I know that, you know, it's difficult for me. Like, like I have friends go, you know, you're investing a lot of energy in this and it's like. I'm already invested like I, I was invested into it emotionally before Disney bought it and before Disney said we're going to reband it as Legends or as Lucasfilm said at that point. So, you know, I was always invested in it. But now it's to the point where, you know, my kids have blatant EU names like my littlest Jaina, where it's kind of hard sometimes when what I love so much has been the expanded universe and those characters are now off on their own, doing their own thing. And you do kind of feel like you have to be the champion for the good of that universe. You know, I mean, I've always said that every Star Wars project has its good and its bads. I mean, every film, there are scenes that I hate, scenes that I love. And, and I can't just say, you know, one is just the shining epicness of awesomeness. I mean, you know, Stover's book is, is great, but there's still little tiny things in that that drive me up a wall. But the thing is, is, is you're always going to come back and forth on those things that you love. And so for me to have that aspect where I'm like, my kids now, they're, they're named it. I come downstairs and I've got all these, you know, these figures that are part of it. You have to be that champion and, and, and point out the fact that, yeah, there were issues, but there were so many good things about what they were trying to do with that, that legacy. You know, I mean, they went out of their ways to treat... The universe like it was a history and it really showed i mean even when they had the the continuity airs the light ones and the hard ones when they would go out of their way to retcon it they treated in that historical fashion of like you know this guy was doing this research he was kind of wrong kind of thing we found out new facts have, have altered the way we're perceiving these things so you know you had all this aspects of it that that when i was discovering it you know it became easy to kind of just fall into it. Like a lot of people fall into the Lord of the Rings and stuff, the lore of it, you know, it's, it's just so big. So when you get to that point and then, and then bam, it's now something else. And everybody seems to thrown it down. Like it's the shekels of oppression. It's like, dang, man, like really guys, like, it's like being the guy that likes to go camping and you're with a bunch of people that absolutely hate it. And you're out there and you're like, you know, roasting your marshmallow around the campfire and nobody wants to be there. And you're like, come on, can't we, you want to share your love. You want them to enjoy what you have enjoyed. Uh So hearing, you know, that, that we've reached people out there that are new to it and they're getting it, that's exciting, you know, and I'll always, I'll always maintain that hope. And I think as long as the MMO, the Old Republic continues to put out content that exists in Legends, I will always feel like it's never dead. I mean, a lot of people, they they still say 2015 was the day it died. But we had short stories that continued through 2015 into 2016. And I think we've even got one this year. So, you know, they are not being published. But it is alive. It's a small little error right now. But, yeah, I I hold on to that little fire and I try to stoke it. But it's that aspect of those alt-legends fans that Nathan talked about. That they've just put such a foul taste that it's... It's difficult to be the champion of that universe and not sound like a complete crazy, you know, desperate to be hurt fool, which sometimes I do. I feel like I'm that fool. It's just the hat I wear. Well, Nick,
0: thank you very much again, as Mark was saying there, for the kind words on this. I think that, that, I mean, we still run into that from time to time, sort of that wavering of personal fandom. I don't think it's so much... You know, and I think we said this at the time, it's not so much that a lack of interest in what's being done, a lack of interest in Star Wars or the, that that fandom waning. It's just, it's the, the 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 desire to interact with the community on it, I guess, to an extent, and, and the context in which you're interacting with them. Like, for instance, on Facebook, I'm frequently active on the page for my Star Wars Timeline Gold, but you can look at the Star Wars Beyond the Films page and... My participation on that Facebook page relative to Marx, has fallen off quite a bit, mainly because we have some people who are hardcore borderline alt legends who will turn any discussion that you get into basically like it could be we're talking about the new TIE fighter type thing that Kylo Ren is going to be flying in The Last Jedi, and you get somebody who says, actually, the real best TIE fighter is the TIE such-and-such, such, which was from this RPG supplement, Legends Forever F-Canon, and it becomes that the entire rest of the discussion, instead of being about what the original topic was. Um, and on the timeline page, when people keep doing that kind of thing, or they start, like, tossing out the uh, the invective, or they start tossing out the, um, the false claims kind of stuff, Um, like uh, Legends was canon, what are you talking about thing, it was always on par with the films until they demoted it, which was never true, that kind of thing. I've got the the, the block button, but I don't want to do that on Beyond the Fills because this is both of us engaging in that, and I don't want to come in and be like, I'm going to press block whether Mark likes it or not, so (laughs) I just got to step back a little bit. I think... It's interesting because you mentioned how, and my, my thoughts are kind of scattered here, but I noticed some stuff as I went along. I think it's important when you're working on a fan project of any kind, whether it's beyond the films, the timeline, the, from the Star Wars Home Video Library stuff, writing the a Saga on Home Video book recently, that we always have to keep the perspective that in a sense, no matter who we're making it for, no matter how big of an audience we're thinking that we're making a show or a project for, in essence, no matter who it is, it's still a niche kind of project. Because there are only going to be some people who are interested in Star Wars in society. Within society, only certain ones are going to be interested in actually hearing in-depth discussions on uh, books, comics, and such. Only some will be interested in one continuity or another. And an even smaller amount will be people who are willing to actually look at both continuities, enjoy both, find the flaws in both, and be able to have that kind of intellectually honest discussion. So you kind of have to get to a point where you say, you know what, there are some people where their reactions shouldn't matter, I guess, to us or shouldn't bring us down simply because, I mean, they're, it's it's not the audience we're trying to reach. Um, I've got a specific example of this, and I know, I know this, this may kind of go off topic. We had a – I don't know that we've talked about this particular review. We had a review on iTunes that basically said – that if you are, I think it, the, the, the phrase was something like, like if you're into PC values, don't listen to the show because every once in a while we'll bring in politics as part of the discussion, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like there was a moment where I stepped back and said, that's what P- don't listen to the show. If you believe in such and such, why? And then I thought that's one of the best compliments somebody could possibly have paid to the show when it really comes down to it. Because the idea of political correctness originally, or PC originally, was that you would go to these Soviet or former Soviet countries, and there were political opinions you could hold, or opinions on anything you could hold, that were considered politically correct, because the government espoused that view and supported it. And if you said something the opposite, you were politically incorrect and could be targeted by the government, silenced, arrested, killed, whatever, because you weren't agreeing with the party line you were supposed to follow. Um, When it came to the U.S., political correctness shows up in a really becomes a big thing in the 1990s. And and it's basically just don't be a jerk. You know, say things in a way that's not going to make you a jerk but it started to grow because you had usually people on the left who were like yes and and kind of clung to that idea usually people on the right saying no that's just ridiculous we'll say what we want etc cetera, etc cetera, and kind of pushing aside the idea of political correctness so it wound up sort of latching on to only one side of american politics until eventually you get this idea that there could even be such a thing as pc values not political correctness not just not being a jerk but politically correct Values, which is the idea of there are certain, again, just like in Soviet Russia, there are certain views you should hold because those are politically correct. But if you hold an opposing view, you must be shunned, kind of thing. And I think that any, whether we're talking about left in politics, right in politics, a particular religion, a particular whatever, when it's very ideological, I think to a large degree that stifles the intellectual honesty of being able to have a discussion that's going to get into all angles on something, that's going to point out uh, what works here, what doesn't here, where there are parallels to real life, whether it's something that happens to be leaning conservative or liberal or whatever it might be. To say that basically if you are stuck in a certain ideology to a point where you can't stand to hear any opinion that differs from yours, you shouldn't listen. Shoot, that's a badge of honor, you know, <laughs> because it means that we are able to hit all those different views uh, and, and just kind of come at a topic and take it apart from every angle in a way that sometimes is going to be uncomfortable because it may be expressing an opinion that maybe particular listeners hadn't thought of before. And that's to me, I think that's the essence of discussion, but it's real easy to, to get to take negative opinions to heart because it is something that's a project that you care so much about. But it's like we got to step back and recognize that, you know, there are some people it's just not going to be for. And those are the people a lot of times who are the loudest because it's the Internet. And Internet a lot of times is all about raging against something as opposed to simply saying, you know, I agree. Good on you.
1: You know, well, as a teacher, you're you're the educated guy in politic uh, politics. That's your thing. I mean, I'm the backwoods bumpkin that grew up with no power till I was about nine, almost ten, you know, then moved to the big city. So like. I admit there's a lot of things socially that go over my head and a lot of things that I totally didn't understand. I mean, I didn't realize my grandpa was racist until we moved off that damn hill. Then it was like, Holy crap. Grandpa's got some issues. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, like I'm still discovering things and I'm finding out there are a lot of things that I thought I knew weren't quite correct. And, and so, you know, it's like, it's I, to a lot of degree with me. I feel like a lot of my opinions are slowly evolving as I get older as well. And and having you as a buddy, like you know, I bounce a lot of political stuff off you because like most often I've got the story from somebody online that doesn't know what the hell they're talking about in the first place. So I'm like, man, I and I just share everything. So most people are like, dude, that's not real, you know. And then I'm like, okay, all right. And so Big it's like news. throwing breadcrumbs to the fish. Like anybody know what's going on? Because I don't. Sooner or later, I'll catch one, right? Well, I think that, that I mean, but in
0: essence, you know, like you said, that's that's essentially what I do for a living is I teach social studies stuff, you know, history, economics. Politics, all that kind of stuff. I follow that on a regular basis, but I think that if I were to do an in-depth discussion on anything Star Wars that happens to have political ties or there's political parallels that are built into it and things like that, and for me not to approach it from that angle in, in some form or another would be almost not being true to myself because... What I do is such a big part of who I am the same way that I couldn't imagine us doing one that had to do with, say, um, a parent-child relationship and not having you be able to bring in your insights as a parent into the discussion. Um, You know, what we do and who we are kind of make for the context in which we discuss this stuff because... You know, life influences art, and life influences how we, we look at art. But I guess we're a little bit uh, astray there. But just just know that we are... Uh, thankfully, there's enough of the positivity to buoy us up, even in the most frustrating moments. Even when I'm working, for instance, on the timeline, and Jordan White from Marvel is like, well, we just prefer the fans to make their own timelines. We don't know what order anything goes in. <laughs> and that kind of thing, even when that kind of thing happens, it's other fans that tend to keep us... Uh, Uh, boost it up so speaking of uh, different perspectives on various works we have one here from jared rasher who responds specifically uh, to our coverage of aftermath empire's end Uh, finally wrapping up that trilogy as we did uh, wrap up our coverage of that recently as well he does open it with uh, apologies for going so long-winded on this there was too much for even me to post on facebook he says So, Jared says, My opinion of Aftermath Empire's End is probably going to sound a bit like Michael on Cloud City Casino discussing the Death Star expansion for Battlefront. I now (laughs) think I was a bit overly generous to the first book, but I hated seeing the knee-jerk reactions to Winding himself versus the book, or the alt-EU people giving the book bad reviews while proudly proclaiming that they didn't even read it. Which was happening. Even with that latitude, I mentioned that I thought it took too long to get the team together, so the last third of the book was really what the whole book was about. Ironically, when people were discussing this on the Star Wars books page, and people wanted to know if this would be better than the first book, that is, if Empire's End would be better than the first book, my reply was that if it was paced like the second book, which I really enjoyed, it would be better. But if it was paced like the first book, there might be issues. To my surprise, the person posting for the page replied that since they had already established the team, the pacing should be more like the second book. Their response almost made me think that they knew there were some issues with the first book. (laughs) Unfortunately, I have to say this one felt a lot more like the same pacing as the first book. Overall, the last third of the novel really mattered, and the first two thirds of the book seemed to be stuffed with filler to make it a novel-length story. I tried to start any criticisms out by stating the positive. I was interested in any of the parts of the book that dealt with Palpatine and his contingency. I'm glad that there were some consequences to the overall arc in the form of losses. I liked where Sloane ended up in the story, as it made sense for her character. Now, the negatives. Big picture. The overall structure of these books reminded me a lot of The Hobbit movies. Maybe you could get away with two, and it would feel a bit long, but three really makes it feel like it was a trilogy for the sake of having a trilogy. In the first book, the interludes were clues to the state of the galaxy in new canon stories. Now, either they focus on major characters or characters that the story already touched on and provides them epilogues, or they feel completely extraneous because they've already gotten their glimpses at the galaxy as it stands post indoor While we're talking interludes, I never thought I'd say this, but Jar Jar deserved better. The interlude felt far too much like a meta commentary. Children like him, adults hate him, and you'll never see him again. While I think that there were plenty of missteps with the character, the interlude also seemed to paint him as exactly how he appeared in The Phantom Menace, even though the character actually did experience some character growth in Attack of the Clones and the Clone Wars animated series. It was like a big authorial wink to the audience saying, don't worry, this is the last you'll hear of him, and he never did anything of consequence ever again. Speaking of meta-commentary, there were just way too many cute moments in the book that started to rub me the wrong way. I'm not a Star Wars fan that dislikes callbacks or repeated dialogue from other Star Wars sources, but I think it needs to be worked in thematically. At times, I felt like Wendig was saturation bombing us with Star Wars callbacks. The ankle biters quote "Jin from Rogue One. We rebel. The slicer says, are we really doing this? When he and Sinjir are about to head to Jakku and Sinjir goes into a mantra when he starts fighting. All feel too artificial and too recent to me. I'm not sure where he was going with Timmin's conversation with Wedge, but the whole discussion about how his heroics didn't have to be in the books for Phantom Squadron to make a difference also sounded like some kind of half attempt to placate fans of the Rogue Squadron slash Wraith Squadron books. Timmin was a little annoying once his father came back in life dead, but his conversations in the first two-thirds of the book with his mother are like every conversation he had with her in the first book all over again. While I'm discussing repetition, Wendig uses the character's points of view to reintroduce characters that had already been introduced multiple times. It was like Suicide Squad all over again. (laughs) The longer we stay with the character from their point of view, the more they start using the same phrases and mannerisms, and it feels like Wendig is struggling to give the characters their own voices. One scene was particularly emblematic of some of the problems with these books being filler. Leia receives a call. Before she takes the call, she then has multiple pages of thoughts before answering the call. Seems like this happen multiple times in the book, especially in the first two-thirds of the book, and they felt very awkward and taxing. There are multiple times when Wendy introduced characters we haven't seen in a while in a particular situation, usually a bad one, and then we launch into a flashback explaining how they got into that situation. It's awkward and inconsistent, because it's not how things work in other books, and it mainly happens in the middle of the book. This makes me feel like this is what Wendig did to help pad his word count. And let me say, if this series was envisioned as a trilogy and didn't have enough steam to fulfill that promise, that's not entirely Wendig's fault. The scenes on Jakku in the middle of the book felt endless for no good reason. I now agree with Anakin. I hate sand. It gets everywhere in the narrative, and it grinds the story to a halt. The book also feels wrong in tone. I enjoyed Rogue One being a darker Star Wars movie, but it managed to do so and still feel like... Star Wars movie. It introduced darker themes and punctuated them with more standard Star Wars moments. At times, Empire's End really wallows in the darkness and doesn't really bounce back to a more standard Star Wars narrative. Keep in mind, I'm not saying Star Wars can't go dark. The Legacy comics were easily one of my favorite EU elements, and they definitely played with darker themes and events than most Star Wars media. But it still had a certain energy and revisited certain themes and generally still felt like Star Wars, but darker. When Empire's End goes dark, it's not hard to see that Wendig made his name initially with the World of Darkness RPG line, and it reminds me of what I didn't like about adult books like Mall Lockdown. It's not just vivid descriptions of violence and torture. It's the general trends that flow through the book. In Rogue One, we see a rebellion that has done some things that got them dirty, but when they see a chance to rally around the higher cause they originally came together for, they do it, and it feels like a pivotal moment. In Empire's End, children go feral, people destroy their own homeworlds despite the empire, and Mon Mothma becomes a modern-day politician that really does abandon her principles to get the job done, exactly as her political rival accuses her of doing. I mean, she actually does. It was actually very frustrating to me that at the same time Mon Mothma is worried about giving up control of the military for the sake of democracy in the middle of a war that's still going on... She has no problem sending out operatives that do illegal things to elected officials to essentially counter-blackmail them into voting the quote-unquote right way. Call me kooky, but assuming that there must be rules, but just this one time they don't apply because your opponents are so wrong seems much more detrimental to a democracy than retaining executive control of the military in the middle of a war that isn't actually over yet. Mon Mothma also seems to be at odds with her portrayal in Bloodlines as well. Leia indicates in that book that Mon Mothma was a good leader until she became sick and provided them with focus. This book shows that she's off balance and fighting off political forces right from the start. Given that life debts seem to imply Leia was on the outs with Mon Mothma and may have been starting a resistance from this time period on, while Bloodline shows that Leia was working as senator for years before that fallout occurred, I almost feel like this book was trying to walk back some of what Wendig wrote in that book, that is, Life Debt. Given the time frame, it feels like Wendig may have been working on Life Debt at the same time Bloodlines was being written, and was forced to reconcile Leia with Mon Mothma and put Mon Mothma in a stronger position to get Empire's End and Bloodlines on the same page again. The Black Sun slash Red Key storyline with the Senators feels like it was shoved into the story both to make sure anyone opposing Mon Mothma looked really bad, especially considering how underhanded she was being, and to give some of the characters something to do to help pad out the middle of the book some more. Does the Journal of the Wills really read like a Dr. Seuss book? I really didn't picture it having sing-song rhymes that patch together Star Wars-isms in one place. I have a lot of tolerance for plot holes and the unexplained in Star Wars. I'm fine with Han coming out of hyperspace inside a shield when nobody else has ever tried it because Han is lucky and tries crazy things. I don't need it over-explained. On the other hand, explaining things just a hair bit too much opens up lots of problems. Starhawks have tractor beams powerful enough to hold on to Super Star Destroyers, but with multiple Starhawks, the Battle of Jakku, and the Empire's main tactic being a tight formation of Star Destroyers around a Super Star Destroyer, nobody for the New Republic thought to just drag individual Star Destroyers away from the blockade and bomb the crap out of them to break the blockade? If the tractor beams are that powerful, it would have been easy for a battle group of smaller, more maneuverable ships to pull away the larger ships one by one and isolate them. Then the Empire either has to break up the blockade to reinforce the isolated ship, or start seeing their ships whittled away one by one. Starhawks are mentioned as being one of the first ships designed by the New Republic, in the past. But the Battle of Jakku is only a year after Endor. How quickly were these things being designed and built? And why do people think in the past tense, like, the New Republic has been around for years at this point? I was also a little disappointed on how the Battle of Jakku played out. Lost Stars makes it seem like it was the final point in the war with the Empire and doesn't imply that it drug on for months. If the treaty with Masamita was the actual end of the war, and the Battle of Jakku was still going on, and there are still Imperial remnants mentioned as existing after the treaty is signed, doesn't that completely undermine the Battle of Jakku being the end of the war, as multiple other sources have said? As a tiny aside, Strongholds of Resistance is looking even more like it doesn't match the new canon at all. That's an... RPG book for Fantasy Flight Games. Chandrila was never, quote, touched by the Empire, so no garrison, no blockade. Am I the only one that thinks that seems unlikely given that Mon Mothma is from Chandrila and she's the leader of the Alliance? I mean, I guess it could have been a reference that the Empire never caused large-scale violence there or something? But you would have thought Mon Mothma would have mentioned some kind of occupation or secession of freedoms to counter the argument if that was the case. The book worked me up on ways a new canon book hasn't yet but not really in a positive way. I don't know that there was a lot that is factually contradictory to other new canon sources, but there seems to be a lot that is thematically at odds with other material. While I can see some of the faults and evidence in this book in the first book, this book seems to really amplify some of the issues of the first book. It's hard for me to tell with the audiobook, but it seems like the quirks with the English language may be less, but the actual way the story is told has bigger issues. It's a real shame, because I enjoyed Life Debt, and thought it signaled that the first book just took too long to introduce the team, get them together, and give them something to do. It also indicates to me that while the author may not be blameless in all of this, part of the problem is that this was made into a trilogy. The first book couldn't give us anything of too much substance, because The Force Awakens wasn't out yet. The second book actually gets to tell a story, because we know more. But the third book can only hint about the unknown regions and the rise of the First Order because presumably that will be told in The Last Jedi and Episode 9. So it's right back in the same position as the first book. Much of the blame lies squarely with Lucas books, which wanted to give us an epic trilogy that culminates in the vague hint of things you already kind of started to figure out from the vague hints and things like the visual guides and novelizations, which also did things other than delivering vague hints, so they were more satisfying than this trilogy of books. From the perspective of having finished the books, at most, these should have been two books. Given that Han starts to figure into the narrative more in book two and three, it might have been more satisfying for people that wanted more of the main characters, as two books would have allowed for a better balance between new characters and established ones. He ends there. Lots and lots of detail to his critique here of Empire's End, some of which we agreed with, some of which get a little bit uh, uh, more negative. I would say, than our opinions of it, but certainly many valid points here. Uh,
1: Mark, go for it. Man, Jared, first off, man, we're going to have to get you on the show at some point. Damn, son, you, like, broke that down spot on on so many things. I mean, the Hobbit analogy, spot effing on, dude. I mean, that's exactly how I felt that trilogy went. It, It felt like at times that Chuck had one really good story, and then they, how can we spread this out like a deck of cards? Uh, you know, you kind of get the feeling at times like Chuck planned for Rax to be Snoke, but then along the way he found out he couldn't make him Snoke. So he just tossed the mystery out with that character. Uh, the Mon Mothma character, having her turn away from her morals and stuff. And, uh, that's, To me, it almost seemed like the publishing arm is going back and forth with the aspect of the Empire is bad, you know, that point of view. You know, we're getting a lot of that gray area stuff, but I think with this new canon, this is really the first time that we're actually getting the Rebels portrayed as terrorists, but more so than just an opinion. Like, they're doing things that legitimately make them terrorists. And so now, you know, we're playing with that in a realm... It's always felt to me like The fan base is supposed to be pro-Rebels, and yet... When you look at our fandom, there are people, I mean, even myself, I love the Imperial side of things, but if I was to be an in-universe character, I would see myself as somebody that joined the Imperials, went so far, became an ace or whatever, and then rebelled. Like, that. that's that's where my lure is. You know, I like I like the order and stuff of it, and then I realize how bad it is, and I get out. And so I think there's a lot of other fans out there that, that find themselves enjoying the Imperial cog, uh, drawn to the Imperial side of things, the armor, the really fancy ships and things but they don't want to be the D bags that the empire was back in the day. You know, they back in the day in legends, they were a bunch of men only, no alien, completely misogynistic bags. And now Canon's more, you know, Hey, we'll take anyone. We've got women in power more often than what we had before. We've got, you know, gay and lesbian characters. I, I, they're very more progressive than ever before. And it seems like that shift it, when you're reading from one book to another, it's kind of weird sometimes to go from that because like I'm in Inferno Squadron right now and I'm digging it. But Aaron Goins had said something on Twitter that made me think about the way that this is going down because they'd shot down like four or five TIE fighters and, and uh, Y-Wings in the first few chapters. And the thought of like, you know, those that's a hero dying, you know. And I, and I didn't think about that. I went back and I re ran. it. I'm like, yeah, you know, looking at it from that light, I could see how this could be a little disturbing. If, if you're a died in the Wolves Rebel fan, like, I could see how that gray area could be one of those areas where, like, I'm not sure I'm comfortable playing over here. Uh, what you mentioned about Jar Jar, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat, like... I But I'm in a different boat at the same time because I wanted Jar Jar to get something even worse. Like, I I wanted the comics, the Star Wars comics, where we saw that Gungan with the one eye patch and all the scars all over his face. His ears all tore up. Kind of almost looked pirate-esque. And he was talking with Dengar on the end of one of those. Like, I was hoping that was Jar Jar. I was going to hope to find out that Jar Jar's life was so rough that, like, he got tortured for a while and stuff. And, like, he's barely living on the fringes. So I, I don't know if, like... What I had in mind for Jar Jar would be an improvement on what we had, but I, I don't know. I wasn't a fan of the clown thing. Like, he was clown enough already. You wanted an E! True Hollywood story kind of thing for,
0: <laughs> <laughs> for Jar Jar. Jar Jar and found after, death sticks. Kind of like an r d 2 Beneath the Dome, but but go even darker. And then he got into meth and lost all his teeth, <laughs> and so on. Now, Jared, again, we, I think I think we're somewhat in agreement on, on Empire's End. Uh, I, too... Not as big a fan of that one as of Life Debt. I do think it was better than the first book, but again, valedictorian of summer school and all that. I think that uh, your approach is a little bit different than ours, because, and, and that's a good thing um, because it's a, an approach that we can try to keep in mind in the future as well, in that you're looking at themes from sort of the big picture thematic look, and we're looking at more the nuances of the, the specific book. Um, you're looking at the nuances, but you're looking at them in relation to the big picture, and we're kind of zoom down to almost a microscopic level sometimes, um, which is weird because that's a conversation I had at work today about how to look at what we do in our jobs. But, but yeah, I think that you're right, that thematically there were some things that were, that were just odd. And that's one of the things that I feel like the story group would be trying to stop from happening. Like the story group, maybe it was a matter of them having to kind of redirect how he dealt with Mon Mothma and Leia relative to what eventually happens in Bloodline and sort of just redirect it enough that it could kind of dovetail back into what was expected so that it doesn't feel like it's entirely inconsistent. But, you know, that seems like one of those things that if they already kind of knew what they wanted for the characters in the long run, that they wouldn't have let him put that in there in the first place and have them have the rift that they had in the first place. But um, it seems as though... And we're seeing this more and more that what's happening with the story group is less a matter of here are the things that must be true. Now go write your story and have fun with it. And more of a go have your story and write fun with it. have fun with it. Now let's make sure that everything that you've said matches up. And if not, let's tweak it. And by giving them sort of the freedom before the fact rather than after the fact, um, it's as if. Sometimes they're having to, to come up with creative ways to have one story kind of skew one way to, to finally match up with another because in the case, for instance, of, uh, of the way that it was dealt with in Aftermath, the whole Mon Moth, Malaya kind of being on the outs thing, that was such a big plot point that it's not really something you can come into the book and just tweak and say, okay, we're going to tweak this few facts here, and now it's going to match with everything else. No, instead, we need to kind of guide them in the stories now that are being made in between to have it match back up again. I don't know. I don't know. I'd love to sort of see how the story group works on the approach to individual books. Like sort of a somebody within Lucasfilm, you guys have like a Star Wars blog you can use. How's about sort of a uh, pick three books that are all going to happen in a relatively similar time frame and give us blog posts, uh, a series of blog posts after all the books are out, talking about the creative process behind them in parallel. Not, Mm. here's how this book was made, here's how this book was made, here's how this book was made, but instead, here's how this time period went when these books were being made, and in this six months, here's what happened on all three. In this six months, here's what happened on all three again. Give us a, a glimpse of that parallel writing, and I think that's something we'll be able to understand a little bit more. But instead, there's that frustration and sort of that feeling of, you know, at what point do we start pinning things down? I mean, I was frustrated by Thrawn not pinning down how much of a time gap there was between all the really connected dates of the first two-thirds of that book and the last third that just jumps an indeterminate amount in time to eventually jump us into Rebels, which doesn't really allow us to place the early stuff well. But that's all chronological stuff. When you've got themes that need to be pinned down that don't quite seem like they are, uh, they are. Under us understanding that process will either make it Make for more specific critiques that can be on specific parts of the process or would have us be able to say, oh, well, that makes sense. Okay, And maybe make us more forgiving about certain things. But not really knowing how the process works in sort of a step by step way, I think it's going to lend to us a lot of times assuming the worst because we're feeling the negativity of something that didn't seem like it went right. it's like we ascribe some type of negative thing to why it happened as opposed to, well, this was just a coincidence because they happened to be writing the books at the same time. Oops. As opposed to it being, well, they just weren't coordinating. You know, we we just don't know. But yeah, yeah, I think that your take on Empire's End was was. fairly spot on
1: there. See, and with the parallels, too, what you're talking about, that's something that I find interesting, not just in the books. I mean, you know, Carrie Fisher passing away at the end of last year, down the road when it's an appropriate mourning period, to look back on that and look back on Episode 8 and and Episode 9 once they're already done, and to get that parallel story like you're talking about, Nate, I think it's going to be an incredibly interesting story to find out how Star Wars changed in light of Carrie Fisher's death. I mean, you know, right now they're definitely Definitely being tight lipped. They're playing it well. It's the media game of we don't want to hurt the IP. We don't want to disrespect the actress and her family and her legacy. And we've also got the bigger IP of the mouse himself that we've got to keep in mind. You know, it's that PR nightmare of we've got to say all the right things right now. But it'd be interesting to go back and see, you know, this is where we were planning on going with the story and then this happened. And so we had these three options or these four options or we really had no other option but to do this. And that to me is, is those parallel behind the scenes stories and stuff. I understand why they can't tell it at the time of. But going back and giving us that information—that is definitely something I'm very interested in, and I—I I, I think a large majority of fans, even casual fans, would find it interesting to know that type of stuff.
0: <laughs> maybe maybe it's because uh, very recently, while at Big Lots, my wife and I picked up an old Vertical Horizon CD <laughs> to listen to in the car. But when you were talking about doing the right things at the right time, I'm like, I'm like. You say all the right things at exactly the right time, but fandom keeps complaining and you don't know why. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's, <laughs> just, it's, it's that kind of week. It's just that kind of week. Oh, so let's dive into one that's a little bit shorter, actually a lot shorter, um, that gets us into another topic here for our feedback here. This one comes in from Arnold Corso, uh, Jedi, uh, who says, Hi, Mark and Nathan. Hope you're doing well. I was recently listening to the Cloud City Casino podcast episode on Shadows of the Empire. Woohoo! Something Nathan said gave me a great idea for a Star Wars Beyond the Films episode. Nathan mentioned how some EU books, like Shadows of the Empire, proved extremely influential in shaping the rest of the EU, characters, aliens, etc., while others, like the Black Fleet Crisis, didn't. I'd love to hear you two talk about which EU books, slash comics, slash games, were the most influential and why. On another note, Black Fleet Crisis. I haven't heard anyone mention that series in a long time, but it was always one of my favorites. Any chance Star Wars Beyond the Films will ever do an episode on it? Keep up the good
1: work, Dom. I remember Black that one Black Fleet Crisis at the time, like when Han went looking for it. Like that was a really cool theme, and I remember thinking when Canon restarted, I was like, man, I kind of hope that that story, the whole now. Now and and I might be getting this wrong. Now the Black Fleet Crisis that was not the Katana fleet, right? That was a different fleet, wasn't it? Yeah, the
0: the Black Fleet Crisis was a Shield of Lies, Tyrant's Test. It's the one's with a Yavetha coming in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where oh, and Han and Luke, gets tortured. And Luke going off so and like bad. finding his supposed mom, and it turns out it was all a scam by some yeah. con artist.
1: That also is like the only book that Chewbacca is actually translated. Like we see, like he's giving orders to his son when they go looking for Han. Like that was, oh yeah, that was good stuff. That I mean, yeah, but it was. See that that's getting back to what we were talking when Nicholas. In the beginning. There's good things in everything. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. And, and I think it'd be, it'd be interesting, and this is something that, um, the reason why uh, people keep asking me, uh, will you ever bring back from the Star Wars library on YouTube? Not from the Star Wars home video library, that's still going with the home video stuff featured, but from the Star Wars library was that series I did up until a year or two ago that was basically the different books and comics and publication order being looked at. And... Um, and it, it may make a return. I've had somebody suggest that when I start the Patreon that's going to be started up here within the next couple of months um, that along with providing audio commentaries for different you know episodes of Clone Wars and Rebels and movies and stuff like that as sort of a Patreon reward to have one of the things be if we get to a certain dollar amount per month from all the Patreons together um, who are coming into it, all the users together, that... You know, say once you hit a certain level, then from the Star Wars library might come back or something like that. I don't know if that's viable. But uh. Uh, one of the things that's kind of made me sit back and say, huh, maybe. is Like that a Butler
1: Bucks level, right?
0: <laughs> yes, there you go. We're, we're getting to a point where we're st- Starting to see some story group canon stories and being able to recognize them that, hey, this introduced some of these characters that are going to stick around. Hey, this introduced some new situations or planets or whatever that are now pretty influential on the rest of that continuity. Um, But it's still so early in story group canon that it's hard to know, like, what's going to be your... Jedi Academy Trilogy, Thrawn Trilogy, New Jedi Order, um, Shadows of the Empire, etc., etc. What's going to be your book or comic series that's going to be the thing that sets a tone and creates a cast of characters that then expand throughout that new continuity. But it's one of those things I'm kind of interested in exploring at some point, not just for talking about the EU, because that we have decades of hindsight to be able to look back and say, here's the ones that were more influential. Here's the ones were almost completely ignored in terms of influencing other things. But I'm really interested as we get maybe a year or two from now, maybe when we finally get to a point where we can have some historical perspective on story group canon also, and look at that same question for the new continuity as well, uh, and maybe compare How many of the books or which types of books are the ones that are setting the stage within canon versus what did in Legends? You know, maybe one continuity leans more heavily on characters introduced in comics rather than books or vice versa or whatever. These an interesting question that may be something to delve into at some point, especially if we can put the two continuities side by side and 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 look at where the heavier influences happen to be as for uh, an episode on the black fleet crisis we would have to reread it which is the trickiest part that's the same thing that's stopping us with the new jedi order stuff i don't know when i will ever have the time to reread the entire new jedi order says the says the guy who is in the process of rereading the entire dresden files but what do i (laughs) know? but yeah it's just it's it's just a lot of stuff to try to keep up with especially if we're trying to do episodes on new stuff or even finish up some of those comic book series that we left hanging like we got just Legacy War left man for Legacy but yeah hopefully we'll have a chance to actually circle back around and and get to some of those broader topics and those broader topics are really cool because they can almost happen anytime it doesn't have to be like, oh man, this book just came out. We need to make sure we get an episode out on it soon, so it's still relevant. That type of topic can happen any time, and the relevance will still be right on point. Uh, kind of like a feedback episode. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, when I think about that, though, you know, which books contribute most? It, it is hard, like you say, for the canon timeline to really, you know, have the ones that jump out. But when you think about legends, you know, you named some of the, the ones that do it right out. I was thinking about the Rogue Squadron books. You know, while they might not give you a lot of events, they gave us Borealis, uh, but they also give you a lot of characters that showed up again and again and again. You know, I mean, uh Keltainer and stuff, you know, the West Jensen. I mean, granted, West came from canon first, but we really got to see their personalities explored and who they eventually became. Uh, you know, and you had like uh, the Hapes Consortium uh, and all that stuff that came out of the Courtship of Princess Leia and those books and stuff. Uh, it just—it was funny though the, that the further you got in the publishing and stuff, the more they leaned back on going back to those older stories. And at the time, you—you you got the sense that it was more the author doing the homework, unless it was unless it was Chi or Pablo. Going, oh, hey, you know, you, you got this, you know, got this here, you got that there, which I think is part of why most fans are like, Chi, you and Pablo need to be like on this because you guys got the info, you need to get it out there, uh, but. I don't know, it's, it's definitely one of those cool things because that's what I love so much about the New Jedi Order, was how many of those stories and those little characters they would bring back into the fold and stuff, and going back to those planets that we hadn't been to for so long. I mean, Centerpoint Station, you know, when we, we had the stories that left all that wide open, where Anakin and then were little kids and stuff and they almost started getting it work and you're like, wait, there's this whole mystery here. And then they come back to it later in the New Jedi Order, and then they come even back uh, was it Legacy of the Force or Fate of the Jedi? No, it was Legacy, right? Where, uh, Ben and Jason went there. I mean, there was so much to that that just came back. And I honestly didn't think we were ever going to get that. I mean, I remember on the original forums, I had a thread that was just for those open plot holes that just disappeared. You know, I mean, we talk about continued legends. I mean, there are so many old stories that just, you know, a random thing here or there that was left wide open that a lot of people tongue in cheek say, well, that's why we'll never get it. There's just so much that why bother? But, you know, it's, it's, that's what is so cool about the fact that they went so hard when it came to connecting those things that I hope that the Canon does similar. Like, I want to see more characters like Zier Leonis jumping from just, not just the comics. Like he's, he's in the books. I want to see him show up in comics now. You know, he's not, there he's he's in the tv he's in the book i want to see uh afra show up in a show you know i'm ready for it like like start having some more cross promotion of these characters so you feel like ray sloan why isn't she showing up somewhere like like she could be a private or something at this point right like running around just like green she's like barely 15 or, or leia's age or something i don't know that's, that's more your thing on the dates there. But I want to see the more cross-promotion of these characters across the mediums. You know, my issue with Lego Freemaker, okay? Give me them characters in Rebels or something or whatever they're at in the time frame, whether it be Forces of Destiny or whatever. Give me them as background characters where I can see them in a non-Lego form so I can be like, ah, okay, everything happening in Lego is a Lego universe, but they exist in the other... I mean, they've said it, but I want to see it. All
0: right, we've had our little breather.
1: Now it's time for another long one.
0: And who best to give us a long email for feedback Then I think, like, half the audience just was, like, saying the name out loud. Mr. Andrew Gilbertson.
1: Oh, I was right!
0: Yes. Andrew gives us some more analysis, uh, and his thoughts are always glad to see those. And uh, in this case, he's actually responding back to Dom from a previous feedback episode, but getting into some of his own ideas. So where he references something specific... That was previously said uh, i'll take a moment to mention that but uh it is one of these things that actually dovetails into what mark was just talking about a little bit with ray sloan and understand he did say he wanted to see ray sloan as a private not ray sloan's privates which is a different thing and it actually does <laughs> seem to fit one of the points i think i will probably be making about this email creepily to say please believe me in context that will make sense right now you're probably thinking what the uh uh huh and backing away from the uh from the earphones okay So Andrew says, I have to say, I completely agree with Dom on the new canon really not grabbing me, and on its bizarre defiance of what we see in the films. It feels much like how Star Trek Enterprise wanted to use all the elements familiar to 90s Star Trek viewers, even when those elements the design of the ship itself, the technology, which is not really functionally different from its 24th century counterparts, the freaking Borg were completely anachronistic to the setting or internal logic of the universe. As, as an aside, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing this also with Star Trek Discovery, but that's just me. New canon seems to be the same way, wanting to throw in things fans know from other eras into every era. And also throw the Clone Wars characters into every product, but that's a different rant. Whether it makes sense for them to be there based on what we saw in the original trilogy or not. One could argue this is hardly new. The Old Republic's use of the Clone Wars era armor and the like was especially egregious but it feels more pronounced and lazy here somehow, perhaps because it's so sweeping. Also, I particularly agree with the comments made by Dom on female imperial captains slash admirals, and even more so the preponderance of African-American female imperials in leadership positions. I'm simply dumbfounded. Why would you make the bad guys more diverse? Isn't their whole point that they're intolerant, a point completely borne out by their on-screen appearance? Why would you go against the grain of the one self-evident manifestation of their totalitarianism and bigotry that's obvious from a glance, instead of adding diversification of roles to the good guys and leaving the Empire as it was already established to be, exclusivistic and biased? I understand it acknowledge the points you make, fellas, on an underserved female fandom. But again, if you're going to be adding more female role models, why have an officer of the evil Galactic Empire as your role model? It's just bizarre. He's referring to Ray Sloan there. Maybe the narratives of the stories nowadays are such that we spend greater amounts of time with the Empire, and without female Imperial captains, there would just be no female characters for large swaths of the books or comics. But the incongruity of it with the film portrayals and the seemingly self-evident attitude of the Empire is still baffling. Also, count me as not satisfied by the Starfighter explanation. This is... Me stepping back to explain what he's referring to is the explanation given back in, I think it was one of the Rebels recon episodes, where basically they said that the reason why you only see X-Wings and Y-Wings in the Battle of Yavin is because, well, that's basically Dodonna's cell of the Rebellion. And eventually they come together with all these other cells that all have their own different ships, just like, you know, Phoenix Squadron tended to be A-Wings and such. uh, And that's why when they all come together, there's more diverse starfighters available. So he says, also, Count Me Out is not satisfied by that Starfighter explanation, because it requires the cell on Yavin 4 to be one of many, rather than the rebellion. And that completely undercuts the ending. He's talking a new hope here, though it he kind of works with Rogue One as well. The whole point is that the entire rebellion is at stake. If there are other cells with strong leaders and fighter squadrons and the like still out there, then what Luke and the others in the trench run are fighting for becomes far less significant, and the decisive blow that all the Imperials talk about decidedly more hyperbolic and less decisive. They don't ask, where is the nearest Rebel cell? They ask, where is the Rebel base? A diversified rebellion of disparate cells, while logical, totally flies in the face of a new hope as do most of Rebels' accomplishments, he's referring to the show, considering that in A New Hope, the Rebellion had just won its first major victory. Honestly, this is why people just need to stop making prequels. They can never hold themselves faithful enough to the established details because they get in the way to make it actually work. That said, I gave an update of my status in November and, man, I don't know. I'm not sure that I've gotten better. My absolute aggravation over The Clone Wars look, I get it, everyone else loves that thing, but it seriously drives me crazy, is strangling my love for Rebels, which was the primary driving force for my ongoing fandom. I'm not even sure what to make of Season 3's trailer. This is, for what it's worth, this is the earliest of the new emails that we're looking at. So it's in the lead-up to Season 3 of Rebels starting. On the one hand, the Clone Wars stuff is getting out of hand. Hondo, albeit I make an exception of objecting to the Clone Wars for Hondo, much as I make an exception for loathing Star Trek Enterprise for Shran... Rex, in clone trooper armor, fighting battle droids, talking about another glorious day in the Grand Army of the Republic, Maul, and the trailer even opens with another Ahsoka reference, who, in defiance of story logic, Filoni says still isn't gone from the show, despite having literally the most appropriate possible finale point ever provided. Basically, I think the proportion was ridiculously off in Season 2, and the show suffered for it, much as CW's Arrow and Flash suffered from detaching from their own ongoing storylines to set up Legends of Tomorrow too often but I was prepared to accept it if it was isolated to season two. As it is, this plus the confirmation of a Clone Wars character in Rogue One has me tearing my hair out. It feels like if every action movie we produce today had some sort of tie-in to the Vietnam War. That era is past. Its relevance to modern events is limited. It would feel extremely contrived to repeatedly have veterans from it or civilians affected by it placed centrally to the storylines of a genre of modern film. Yet it feels like that's happening in Star Wars. And I get it. The Clone Wars was popular. Its fans want callbacks. And set mostly in the original trilogy period, people would still be around from that era. But the continued focus an application of the long-standing small-world principle of Star Wars focused on a particular sub-series of the franchise, well, it's literally choking off my enthusiasm. It feels like being the only person on Earth not to like Frozen all over again. At the same time, the trailer looks genuinely cool. The inclusion of Wedge is fun, and Thrawn is... well, I'm not sure what to think of Thrawn. I think this really challenges my perception of what it is I objected to when the Clone Wars brings in Quinlan Vos or Dengar or the like. Am I bothered that these characters are not themselves, as I always claimed? Or is it the mere presence of these characters outside the narratives with which I'm familiar that's anathema to me? And are the two really extricable? After all, the narrative shapes who the character becomes through what they undergo. Because unlike Voss, this thrawn looks to be absolutely faithful to the Zahn character, removing that objection. And yet I'm not sure whether I'm excited or dreading it. And I have to ask myself, what is it that really bothered me then? And is it still present? It may be that I just don't like to see a character from a story that won't be included, being included in any context, because I can reconcile the two canons more easily when they don't intersect. It may be that the presence of the old character in new context is fine, but still too linked to reminding me of the old story that I loved being demoted from relevance as I see it, that I can't enjoy it. Or, it may be that as long as a character is faithful, I'm thrilled to see new stories with them and their incorporation into this new universe. I honestly haven't decided yet. Although, if Wraith Squadron and Kyle and Jan make the jump to new canon, it would probably be a lot easier for me to make up my mind. As for the other tie-ins, though, I've got to say, I've pretty much given up on the books and comics. I just haven't picked one up that hasn't disappointed me. Though, I haven't read Bloodline or Lost Stars, so I haven't written off the possibility that quality stories could be out there. That, combined with the depth of relevancy issue we discussed, and what feels, to me, like a continually shallower, less rich writing style pervading the franchise, well, I just don't think there's anything there for me now. My fandom persists, but it has shrunk to a movies- and TV-only fandom, with TV wavering as stated above. And then there's the movies. I love The Force Awakens, except for the ending, which left me cold, so that's left me in a bit of a limbo. I am very much looking forward to Rogue One, that much I know, but beyond that, I'm not sure. I think I may be getting out of ongoing Trek after Star Trek Beyond, and I'm not sure if Star Wars is going to follow. My two-year-old won't make it easy for me to break away, and he's currently obsessed with (laughs) Dop-Mater. I think it'll very much depend on how Rogue One affects my fandom, and how much Rebels Season 3 brings me back. In that way, I'm sort of in the Star Wars equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck, remaining a fan movie to movie, but in a frail enough place that if the next one down the line doesn't grab me, the chain could be broken for good. So this fall and early winter will really tell the tale. Clearly, though, my fandom of the old Star Wars is going nowhere. I just purchased Wookie World the trade paperback to complete my Marvel-run collection and finished on Tales from Jabba's Palace yesterday. Just like with Star Trek, it is only how much I follow the ongoing developments of the franchise that's in question. I'm sure there will always be a place in Star Wars fandom for me. I'm just not sure if I've grown too different from current Star Wars, or it from me, to really enjoy what's coming out now anymore, which is... Pretty much the same place I was in last year with Rogue One being the same make or break test that The Force Awakens was. So, after a year of stasis, The Force Awakens and Rebels breaking even, prolonging the fandom but not actively raising or lowering it due to a frustrating mix of doing both, the fateful decision arrives once more. I'm sure you'll hear from me in December. Andrew. And P.S. I did give Audible a trial. And it's pretty great. Nice. I, I included this specifically given that this is, again, it's the oldest one that we saw. It's actually from right around a year ago we hadn't had a chance to get it into an episode. And I thought that this would be another interesting point, because we've heard from Andrew enough over the years that listeners are somewhat familiar with him and, and sort of the, the tale of his fandom. And because we hadn't gotten an in-depth breakdown of his thoughts on Rogue One, at least not that I see within the mailbox anywhere, um, I thought this would be a good time perhaps to ask Andrew, hey, so... Rogue One has passed. We are now, a few months after it, given a chance to digest it. Season 3 of Rebels has been completed, uh, and now Forces of Destiny is out there, but whatever. I'm curious where his fandom uh, stands now. So by addressing this email, hopefully um, we'll see another email from him that sort of updates us on the tale, and that can be in our next feedback episode as we sort of follow uh, one of the familiar faces. For beyond the films but uh beyond the context there uh mark your thoughts
1: yeah so so andrew did the ground firm up or did the ground become quicksand and swallow jackson completely is what i really kind of want to know i mean you struggle with a lot of things that searching of the soul that i i feel like to a degree i'm at um I'm reading less Star Wars comics than I was before, which is weird because there for a while, as as you listeners know, that was like the main staple of the show. It was the easiest to digest. Um, I'm not cutting back on my Marvel comic intake. I'm still reading lots of Marvel comics, just none that are Star Wars. And part of that, too, came into, you know, I was getting Nate's digital copies and then Marvel pulled this, you know, you'd get issue one he'd buy the physical copy of issue one give me the code i would get a digital copy of it and then about issue number three on some of the series the code suddenly gives you marvel comics wolverine number one and avengers number 45 and no star wars comic like wait what i I thought the code was broke or something and turned out that that was just that was their new marketing plan and so that became a big pain because it's like okay well well that that, now i i'm not going to be able to follow at the moment and and which gets into that paycheck to paycheck thing, which I'll come back to. I am living paycheck to paycheck more often than not, especially when camping comes because all the additional funds end up going for the big trips or sending my daughter off to a dance seminar or dance class or learning some new routine. So when those events come in, my star Wars budget drops or my Marvel comics budget drops and, you know, if you have a comic store box where they hold your comics for you, you know, even though you've, your money drops, the comics in your box don't. They just keep coming and piling and piling. So I've got about a six-inch pile of comics, you know, that I'm, I'm slowly digging out. But they finally, Marvel pulled their heads out of their proverbial, and we got the digital comic codes back. So I missed, what, I think maybe three issues on the monthly runs there. Uh, but so I, I'm back to that, and I'm, I'm reading them on my phone, which... You know, I've got a tablet. Finally, we finally got a tablet. I should get this app on there so I can at least feel like I'm reading a comic because that's the biggest thing that's slowing me down from digesting them as much as I once was is that it's just not as fun on my phone. Although, when I do go camping, I bust out and I read a lot of comics while I'm camping. So I'm catching up there. But that has been the big hit is is that. I mean, that I would look forward to the new comic every week. It's like, oh, you know, is the new KOTOR out? Is the new Legacy out? Just the dying to get to know more about that. So... So that's something I I struggle with as well. And and I finally, you know, I find myself constantly analyzing, you know, what about my collection and and collecting do I desire? Because when it was Legends, it was all about the paperback. You know, I had to have the paperback copies of everything and I had to have the single issues of the comics. Well, when it switched to canon, it was like, well, I don't need to go single issue now. And I was thinking I could be like Nate, get those hardcovers and have them on my shelf with the other ones. It looks really nice, sexy, very attractive. But then, it, then it was just the price tag thing, and then they had those ones. So I was like, okay, I'll just go this route. I plan on eventually buying them because I want that sleek, sexy route. And it looks, it looks sophisticated, adult like, even. And you know, when you've got this many toys around you, you want to look as adult and professional as you can. So, you know, yeah, I, I eventually I want to get there. But I'm constantly going back over that analyzation of that stuff. So I, I feel you on that regard, as I'm sure you probably knew I would. Uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier about. The rebel base showing up and, and the cells uh, that you want to point out made me think about something. You know, if Yavin was the rebellion at the time and the Death Star showing up, it's going to wipe them all out. It makes me think something, though, about rebels with Canaan and Ezra. Either they were there in the fight or on the planet, already dead, or they were off somewhere and it didn't matter what happened to the rebellion because as long as they were alive, the rebellion could live on through them it was just something I hadn't thought about before. You know, now Rebels is really pushing us into that realm of, you know, we're seeing this cell getting close to Leia's cell, getting closer and closer to the point that they may end up being just branches of the same cell. Uh, it, it definitely makes me interested in what what you, you know, think about that. Um, another thing, too, we've talked about it before is the new Empire. Um you know, we're definitely seeing an empire that's not as evil as we once thought uh, its leaders. You know, they're the evil Palpatine, Vader, and, and the, the ones that Palpatine hand selected and hand groomed. But overall, I think that what you and I and a lot of other people are struggling with is that we need to unlearn what we've learned. And this definitely is not the empire that we thought we saw in the original trilogy. Because clearly there were a lot more things happening on the station, a lot more personnel and stuff that we didn't see that that alienistic, uh, sexist D-bags that they once were are a little more open. Um, so I, I, I'm i with you on that aspect of it doesn't feel right. Uh, you know, it feel, it's like I would feel more. It would feel more right if the First Order was the way that the canon empire is being portrayed now, Like like they've evolved and learned a little bit. But I, I, it's that jarringness too. That and I, and I think that it comes back to you know we've had so many books where the empire truly was the biggest evil the galaxy saw that I think it's hard for us to, to shift gears. Now
0: we hit a lot of things there. So first, thank you for writing in, Andrew, of course, uh, but. Uh, let me kind of take this bit by bit, the way my thoughts were churning there as we went along. I think that on, on the whole issue of the Empire and bringing in more diversity into the stories, and there's a lot more diversity in the stories now, uh, and that is somewhat of a controversial point for some, where we're talking about uh, more female characters, lots and lots of female leads, uh, not a lot of new male leads being introduced, uh, a preponderance of more gay characters, certainly more than were in the Legends continuity, and, and trying to go for more of a racial diversity to the stories. Uh, Afra, the way we see her a lot of times, is one of the few characters that you could think of as being designed around what seems to be sort of an Asian facial appearance, as opposed, like a generically Asian facial appearance, as opposed to just going, well, a character's going to be white or black, because that's diversity. What gets me, though, is when it comes to the way that diversity is being handled in Star Wars right now, it strikes me that it feels like sometimes it's for diversity's sake, But there's a case to be made for the idea of more representation. And I think if you try to put those two things side by side and boil it down, what it really comes down to is questions like, okay, does having this character be female or gay or bisexual or whatever, someone that's not male, straight, etc., 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 does that actually matter from a story standpoint? And if it does actually matter, then what is that significance doing? Is it showing us that diversity actually matters to be part of the story because you have different types of characters? Or is it overdone and just there being shoehorned in, essentially? If it doesn't make a difference, if it really doesn't make a difference, if Ray Sloan is black or white, if Ray Sloan is female or male, gay or straight, whatever, um, if it doesn't, then does that actually show equality because the characters' gender, sexual orientations, and everything can be interchangeable? They're all equally strong characters? Or does it show that it's just a change on the surface level to satisfy diversity expectations rather than actually trying to have a truly diverse cast of characters in their characterization? Um, Personally, I don't care what you identify as, as long as I can identify you as interesting, as a worthwhile contribution to that story. And it's tough to say whether some of these characters are fulfilling that role, and I think that the the constant tension between Sana Staros. I still will never forgive you, Marvel, for the Sana solo clickbait, bait bull crap. But it does seem like there's a story aspect that actually plays out related to Sana Staros having previously been in a relationship, either gay or bisexual, with uh, Cheli Afra. Because it plays in the interactions of those characters, how they deal with each other, how much trust they put in each other, and, and sort of how Sana a lot of times reacts to the other characters when dealing with Afra, like, can we just shoot her? You know, that kind of thing. Um, that kind of thing would matter. But how much did it matter that Sinjir was gay? Well, not it. it, it co- he could have been a straight character, Condor could have been a woman, or vice versa. It still could have played out the same way. So except for a few moments in his character, did it really make a difference that he was gay? And is the point that we're all human and it doesn't really make a difference? Or was the point meant to be somehow that this is something that has to be there and it's supposed to be a significant thing that he's gay rather than straight because there are so few gay characters? And was that put in there for that aspect instead, as opposed to serving the story? It's it's always going to draw the controversy, but I find it interesting that diversity has, is such a double-edged sword when it comes to the storytelling that it's almost like you can't win for losing, you know, uh, or damned if you do, damned if you don't. You can be diverse, you're always going to be accused of it being shoehorned, or if you're not diverse, you're going to be, sho- be blasted the other way, and there's always going to be those who will find what you're doing and, and be able to pick it apart. When it comes to the Empire, though, I find it interesting that you know, the, the Empire definitely does seem to be straying away ...from the Legends approach to it. It's like Legends took the Empire and based it essentially on Nazi ideology. That there is a master race, there is a master uh, species in that case... ...there is sort of a master gender, etc, etc. And therefore, there's all kinds of racism and a hierarchy within the Empire and so forth... ...as you would expect. But the Rebels, they're more diverse. They've got all kinds of aliens and such among them. It's how Lucas designed the Rebels versus the Imperials for the films originally... That said, though, it seems like now it's more like the Empire is evil in terms of its deeds. And not so much in terms of the rank-and-file ideology anymore. Like, the leaders have their ideology, and it's an ideology that is what we would think of as evil. But you look at someone like an Aiden Versio in Inferno Squad. Or you look at someone like a Ray Sloan, to some extent... And that, that aspect of evil isn't there so much as someone who wants order and believes in a particular political system and is willing to fight for it. But we see them as the villains because they're fighting against the characters we've identified as the heroes. But that's us identifying which side we want to consider the right side. There's They're not usually giving these imperial characters, especially the military characters, giving them these, these outward you know, detestable qualities. They're making them more relatable as villains, which I think is more interesting, but it also means that it is sort of changing the way that the Empire was defined um, before story group canon. Or, or
1: you've, also got, you've, you've also got your uh, Sinjir in the aspect that as he's, you know, in the Imperial side, he's clearly evil and yet when he comes over to the rebel side, he's still doing all the same things, and yet he's finding new ways to justify it. You're like, so that the, the gray line really
0: shifts. Yeah, it's it, a lot of moral ambiguity is being, is being brought into the stories these days. Um, as for the Starfighter explanation, I actually am more okay with it. I mean, I was okay with it to begin with, the idea that, well, there's the one cell, and then there's other cells, and when you combine them all together, that's why it looks different in Return of the Jedi as opposed to A New Hope. But I think after Rogue One in particular... Uh, with the U-Wings being part of it and such, and not seeing the U-Wings in A New Hope, I think I am totally, and, and there apparently, I think there were U-Wings supposed to be somehow at the Battle of Yavin, because I think we see a U-Wing going up against Aiden uh, Versio in uh, the beginning of Inferno Squad, unless I'm remembering incorrectly. Um, but this idea that, well, they sort of threw everything they had at Scarif, And now, just a matter of, what, a week later at most, they're fighting the Battle of Yavin. So a lot of their capital ships and such, they're in for repairs. They're not available. Uh, A lot of their starfighters are gone. That's why there's so few squadrons out there. There's no blue squadron.
1: That kind of thing, yeah, because they're not going to be able to repair them at, at, at just any place. Like you're not going to go to a quad and just park a rebel fleet. Yeah, that probably wouldn't that probably wouldn't
0: work out so well. As for the interest in the stories and whatnot uh, wavering, I don't think my interest in reading the stories wavers. Um, but specifically to the timeline, the Star Wars timeline gold, which I've been working on a lot lately because I'm trying to get a lot of stuff on there before it gets released. On October 17th, which is its 20th anniversary. I want that 20th anniversary thing to be kind of a big deal But it's not so much about what was being produced so much as to me the question comes down to not well How is this story, you know impacting my fandom? It's more of Do they care as much as we do? You know do the people behind the Star Wars comics telling these stories really care about Star Wars? as much as we do Do the people at Del Rey really care as much as we do, or even close to as much as we do as fans. And there are some who are fans themselves, and you can really tell they love it. Dan Wallace, uh, Jason Fry, and so forth, uh, Christy Golden. You can feel the love coming across when they're writing. But then there are others where you sit back and you wonder if it's just, I'm getting a paycheck. There are a lot of times, for instance, with some of the Marvel comics, I'm like, so you didn't really write this out of love. There's no love seeping off these pages. It's kind of a crappy story, and it feels like you just basically turned it in for the paycheck instead of the passion. Why are you writing for Star Wars instead of something else? And when you combine that with things like not pinning down the times, um, I think that that starts to wrangle against me. And it's interesting because... Pablo Hidalgo recently came out and gave his opinion on the idea of pinning down canon and said it's not a policy thing at all, um, but in his opinion, if he had his druthers, so to speak, Continuity and canon wouldn't get so granular as it does. Like, you wouldn't have something that's so granular as saying, what is the way that the character actually said this? Is it the way he said it in the movie or in the novel? This particular small item of technology, does it exist in this continuity or another? Um, Who shot first, Han or Greedo? Well, in his mind, it would make more sense to say these are all kind of stories being told from the past, and what we know is that the two walked in and only one walked out. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I think that that sort of thing I find refreshing because we get to see the insights into the mind of someone who is behind the saga. But they're drawing a clear line between what their preferred opinion would be versus what they do within the scope of the job. Uh, and Leland Chi has said similar things before in relation to how he looks at things versus what they actually do to kind of keep things running together. But I feel like there's a distinct difference between that And some of the things that we're seeing out of others, particularly coming out of Marvel, where it's just kind of a, it feels like a really willy-nilly approach. You know, we'll figure it out when the time comes, if we need to figure it out, otherwise... Who knows when these stories take place with each other because eventually there's going to be problems that arise from that more than likely. So as for that, I think it's – are you doing it for the paycheck or the passion? When it feels like they're doing it for the paycheck, I wonder if they care as much as we do, and that's when I start to waver. Uh, As far as Legends, I love the fact that he puts it in the terms of Legends not necessarily being dead so much as it's a death of relevance – because that's the thing. That's what, what rankles people about the, the Legends thing. It's not so much, you know, you killed the EU, it's gone. Well, no, it's just separate continuity. You can still read and enjoy it at any given time, uh, still discuss at any given time, and it's still being used for inspiration. But it's the relevance to new stories, the relevance culturally as society starts to coalesce around Star Wars again that is the thing that took the biggest hit. And then I guess the last thing I would say is that just as Rogue One was something that he said could uh, determine whether his faith was justified or not in Star Wars somewhat being the same as uh, The Force Awakens, I felt that with The Force Awakens because it was the first of the new films. I didn't feel that with Rogue One, but now I'm really feeling that to some degree with Han Solo. I feel like the Han Solo film, it wouldn't be a breaking point in my fandom if it sucked, but I feel like it would be a breaking point in my faith in the filmmakers, to know what the hell they're doing because they have knocked it out of the park, in my opinion, with Rogue One and with The Force Awakens, though I could see a lot of valid criticisms going towards either depending on how you want to look at the films. Um, I, I particularly love both films. This one has me sitting back saying, oh, I, I don't know, I, I feel like we're going to wind up with a f- train wreck when it finally comes out, for all that we know. I mean, Woody Harrell's like, yeah, it could be the funniest Star Wars film ever. Well, that could be that it's, you know, got that great, you know, original trilogy humor, or it could be that it's friggin' slapstick, for all we know, and given that they just dumped the two guys who were the original people behind the film because they were making it too comedic, oh, crap! So, I don't know. I, I wonder how that's gonna work. I think f- for the first time since The Force Awakens, and really the f- only the second time for anything Star Wars, to a large degree in... Many, many years for me, the Han Solo film feels like it actually could be something that will perhaps alter my level of faith in a particular group of creative talents.
1: Wow. We'll see. You used the exact same words that I was thinking of as you were putting that together because I'm in that same boat. I mean, for me, Han Solo was the canon character I loved. I always loved Luke and Legends. But it was Han's life in Legends that really helped me enjoy the character even more. And now that we've seen a different outcome for Han, I do not like what they've done with the character in that regard. Like, I feel like Han has got the shaft, just the family life, the, you know, his buddy Chewie that, you know, they were not together. Like, to me, Han literally being solo for so long bothers the hell out of me. And to go back to this era, I mean, you know, now I, I'm, I'm open more to the idea that, okay, they were really going to go anywhere with this. And and these characters may not be at all what I thought they were before. So for me, the, the idea that Han is now, go, we're going to go back to Han's backstory and and tell it. It's like, he was an interesting enough character. Like, if you drop this, like, I might not ever want to know more about Han anymore. Like, you may have just ruined him more than Han no longer shooting first for me. I mean, you could argue all day that that's a fundamentally small change, and some people can argue all day that it's huge for the character being a scoundrel or not. But that shooting first incident is small potatoes compared to an entire film about the character. Like, if you botched that, yeah, the faith is out the window. I mean... I've I've been worried about how the story group has worked for a long time, that the background story that Nate was talking about earlier, those parallels and stuff, finding out how it operates are things that I have desperately wanted to know. And the more information I get, the more worried I am because it's like, hey, we're hands off. Do what you want. No, nah, no, nah, nah, you can't do that. That's too bad. No, nah, yeah, do what you want. No, nah, you can't do that. That's too bad. Ah, do what you want. You know, maybe you should think about doing this, but nah, hands off. And I worry about any franchise that has no exit strategy to their story. And when you're telling an ongoing story, I get that you can't exactly have an exit strategy for the overall story, but you can for each plot. And if you're making it up as you go, there's very little in the realm of exit strategy. So this could go off the rails really fast. And I'm like you, I'm worried that my fandom is going to be what suffers.
0: So I guess the last thing I'll say on that whole Han Solo thing is I think back to a report that's been a while, and maybe it's been debunked since then, I'm hoping it has been, but it was a point at which there were reports out there pointing out that this is the story that will explain how Han Solo got his name, but that it was being interpreted not as, as he got, how he got his reputation, but that this is how Han Solo got the name Han Solo because his real original name was not Han Solo that i think is one of the things that if it is done is going to drive me up the wall if only because of the aspect of so you're telling me that he never told his own son or leia his wife what his real name was so in theory right before the force awakens they could have been walking out in public and somebody would have came by and said hey mikey and han would have turned and everybody would have been like why are you responding to mikey uh that's not good. That, 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 I don't know. I want to see where they go with it. I have faith right now that Lucasfilm is going to try to make sure that this turns out well um, and that the love of Star Wars will come through and it'll come out just fine. But there's another part of me that says if any of the films is going to go down the tubes, this one is the one that seems. To be kind of preparing for it like like most of the films could have fallen into uh, to pardon my French the year they could have fallen into the outhouse waste pile. Um, but most of the films managed to not plan to do that and just jump over the waste pile whereas it seems like the Han Solo film is like putting on its galoshes <laughs> going waiting. <laughs> we know it's going to happen. <laughs> Okay, uh, we have two more here. Uh, well, real quick, I, yeah,
1: I have to throw out there. Uh, it was confirmed by Kathleen Kennedy. It is his reputation and okay, not the actual God. name.
0: Thank God, <laughs> you can breathe, bud. <gasps> okay, oh yeah, it's actually Lando who's using a non plume, Damn it. <laughs> All right, this one comes in from Kenny Crayley with a trio of questions relating specifically, or a few questions here relating specifically to uh, the Marvel comics, which we delved into a little bit here and certainly delved into a little bit at the end of our uh, last episode, uh, where I wound up on a rant. He says, Hello, Mark and Nathan. Love the show, as always. My question is, what are your opinions and thoughts on the current state of Star Wars comics at Marvel? For me, while I enjoy most of the titles currently, like the ongoing Star Wars series, Poe Dameron, and miniseries like Han Solo... A few things I do ponder. Number one, how come we don't have a new canon timeline in the comics like we do for the novels? Number two, why is Dr. Aphra getting so much hype now that she has her own ongoing series? And number three, why has the focus for the comics been so much on the original trilogy? Also, do you guys think Marvel will expand the comics to other eras like the prequels and or sequel trilogy era or Rebels era? I like most of the comics for Star Wars at Marvel, but would like to see something different here and there. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work with Star Wars Beyond the Films. May the Force be with you, as always. Sincerely, longtime Beyonder and loyal listener, Kenny Crayley from Ohio. Let me take a stab at this real quick, because I, if I don't, I'm going to wind up in a rant with this. So let me just try to be succinct and say, i got to get my opinion out of the way, because Mark needs to talk. So, how come we don't have a new canon timeline in the comics like we do for the novels? I would like to say that it's because of a design decision for space, and maybe it's just they want to use that interior cover for something else. I think probably the more obvious answer is because they don't know when the comics happen. Because they know that most of their comics are between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back, but if you put a gun to one of their heads, they wouldn't be able to tell you what order they happen in. Which is insane. Like, when does the Chewy one take place? Oh, here and there. When would the Han Solo miniseries take place? Well, I think it would probably take place here because as you're reading the comics, there's sort of like an ongoing present. And, well, if something's released around the same time as something else, they're being told at probably about the same time. You could sort of assume that. Well, it doesn't really fit in here. Okay, well, then find a spot where there's an opening and stick it in. Remember, we prefer that fans make their own timelines. Ugh! Anyway, um, so yes, I think that the good answer would be that they just haven't thought of her. they just weren't planning on doing it or it's some kind of design decision, but probably more realistically, they don't know when the hell anything takes place. Um, two, why is Afra getting so much hype now that she has her own ongoing series? I would argue that it's because she is really, she and her companions for that series, um, primarily Triple Zero and BT1, although Black Kersantan is in there. I mean, she's really the only new character introduced within the comics that has caught on with anyone. She is essentially the Marvel Comics version of when it comes from a legend standpoint of like a Thrawn or Amara Jade. She's the one that people have found interest in and they're spreading around to other stories. And that works because I love the Afra character. I think she's fantastic. I think she's cracked in the head. But it's kind of cool to see them finally fleshing her out some more and giving her a chance to shine on her own rather than just being alongside uh, of Vader and sort of being a pawn of him. But a lot of hype is coming around, it, I think, partly because she's a really well-done character and kind of quirky, uh, especially with, you know, sort of the darker side of the personality. Uh, Sort of like, what if, you know, what if Indiana Jones was a Sith? But at the same time, if they were going to focus on any characters they've created from the Marvel comics, who else are they going to focus on? Is Sana Staros going to get a series? And maybe we'll get the backstory of the whole deal where she called herself Sana Solo and all that crap uh, to play with some more clickbait. I mean, who else do they have? And then uh, why has the focus been on the original trilogy? I think it's because uh, a lot of focus... For a while, was on the prequel stuff back uh, in Legends, particularly because the Clone Wars cartoon series was out. Um, they are able to connect the original trilogy, to the sequel trilogy, quite well into Rogue One and such. So that era and its characters are what they're really trying to market at the moment. Um, so the original trilogy characters come out. They're trying to bring back sort of that fan base um, that saw that as sort of the true Star Wars as opposed to uh, the prequels. It does seem like a lot of the folks, even within Lucasfilm, have sort of a, a negative connotation of the prequels, but less so for the Clone Wars, which is... And interesting dynamic. But surely they're going to wind up in other eras. We've got a little bit of sequel trilogy era stuff, um, though not much right now. We've got a little bit going into the Clone Wars type of era and the prequel era with stuff like uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin. We've got the Mace Windu series that's coming out. But I don't see them doing that in a big way anytime soon because it seems like they're really going to try to keep fixating on uh, the best-selling characters and the stuff tying into their newest movies. Uh, at least that's what it seems to See, you. That seems like that's more of a business decision than a creative decision. But I think that goes back to what Andrew mentioned. I think it was Andrew. Uh, the whole idea of sort of the small world concept in Star Wars, that if you focus just on these small groups of characters in these small, isolated time periods, you're not really building a, a large, sprawling universe so much as you're just kind of filling in gaps within movies, which is
1: similar to... On a small scale, but not really the same thing. I think it'll all be summed up with one word. I mean, every one of these questions comes down to money, 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 money. <laughs> You've got Marvel going full speed ahead. They're focused on quantity, not quality. They're ready to kick out as many comics as they can because, hey, it's 3 a comic. And I think that's the problem. If they were to slow down and put out less in the same amount of time but they're you know they're a huge entity in themselves they're like we can do this. this is small potatoes for them you know i mean when you think about what they're doing for the other characters and stuff doing three or four comic lines at one time of star wars isn't a big thing to them but if you are somebody that invests heavily into marvel comics in general you'll find that They have so many people working that they really have their Sith mixed up. They have nothing together. Uh, you know, you've got characters that are literally in two places at the same damn time all the time because they don't know what the left hand's doing from the right. Uh, so, so that's, to me, that's the one thing that Marvel could really focus on is backing down on the amount of lines they have. Maybe do just one or two and offset them. You know, do, do two lines where they're coming out every other, Uh, week kind of thing so you get one every week but you're bouncing from one story to the other let them tell those out and work on you know, when you want to do your crossover, don't have five lines that are crossing over. Tell your story and then have it cross over into events later or something like that. You know, work at that direction where you're really getting a better quality of story. Uh, that's the number one thing. Nate, you said a lot of things on, on Afro and stuff that I think play off, but it, it, it gets back to that money. I mean, it's, it's the fans favorite right now. We're willing to throw more money at that character because we're digging on that character. Uh, the timeline thing, I think, honestly at this point it's more of a Delray thing it seems to be more their cup of tea to put the timeline in there and as Nate said it's just Marvel couldn't do it even if they tried exploring other eras I think yes but I think the problem is it, you're only going to see it in pre-established eras so until a film goes to an era and and bridges it out we're not going to see anything old Republic era we're not going to see anything in a legacy type era uh, you know a canon relevant to 140 years past A New Hope or the Battle of uh, of Endor so you know while i I would love to see that, I don't think we're gonna see it until they go there in the actual film form. It seems like films are leading this dance,
0: and lest we sound as though it's just you know bashing Marvel all the time, I mean, I I'll say there are some Marvel stories that I have really enjoyed. I mean, I think that the way that they approached getting into the Darth Vader series originally and introducing Afra was quite good. I think that as weird as it was, screaming citadel was quite a bit better than Vader Down. They've done some good stuff the Poe Dameron series while seemingly filling an ever larger gap in what should have probably been a very small gap between Before the Awakening and The Force Awakens is telling solid stories. It's is that sometimes there's a there's just things that just aren't working. But lest this be just about you know, story preferences. There are probably people out there who love the Chewbacca series who think that was Leia when it came to the Princess Leia series. There are people probably out there who absolutely love the things that drive me nuts and that I didn't like. But from a technical standpoint, there are issues. And ironically, it was back in around 2003, 2004, when I had a rant on Chrono Radio, my first podcast, about some of these technical things that Dark Horse was constantly screwing up that actually wound up getting Dark Horse's attention, I wound up writing for them. Somehow I don't think it'll happen with Marvel. So so please, please understand there's a parallel and a bit of irony when I say this. But it strikes me here that um, when I look at what's going on with Marvel, it's not just a story thing. If it was just a story thing where the right hand and left hand were having issues knowing what each other's doing, okay, fine. They're writing all at the same time. Maybe they need some better coordination, some better timeline coordination, whatever. From a functional technical standpoint, stuff is happening lately with Marvel that shows they're off their game. They have those 40th anniversary covers, all of which are individually numbered so that if you get them, they're like a set and each different 40th anniversary cover, whichever series it may have come from, has a number, so if you collect them all, you've got one through whatever, right? Well, they wound up repeating a number. They skipped a number wound up repeating a number, so all of a sudden, the set doesn't have it. How hard is it to number, like, one through 20, one through 10, whatever it is, I think it's 20. How hard is it to simply number them? Nope, sorry, the numbers are well, off.
1: Well, to be fair, one through 20 is twice as hard as one through 10.
0: Oh, that, 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 is, that is true. <laughs> and then they had a variant cover for one of the issues of Darth Maul. And they shipped out the variant cover. Oh, wait, no. What you shipped instead of the variant cover calling it a variant cover was that you just shipped out a regular cover. Oops! And now they're having to reship the actual variant. And then we get Rogue One issue number five recently, That at the back of the books, like all the back of the comics usually will show the cover of the next issue without any text on it. It'll just say next issue, right? So you can get a preview of what to look for as the cover of the next comic. Well, the end of Rogue One number 5 has next issue and shows a cover for Rogue One number 5. Its own cover, not the cover of the next issue. It's basic technical stuff they're not getting right right now. They're tripping over their own feet. Something has to be dealt with.
1: They're they're trolling us. They've just made everybody go into a Groundhog's Day loop. Uh, We have the best stories. We
0: have the best covers. We have the best numbers. Sometimes we show the covers twice. And don't worry, we're going to dominate the comic book marketplace and DC will pay for it. Seriously, get on your
1: freaking game. Five is the best number ever. We're going to do it more than once. And when we get to 55, we're going to do it four times. And we're never going to release a Star Wars comic that just has one cover because one
0: is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one, but the loneliest number is the, lo- no- is the number of one. Believe me, that I can tell you. Sorry. Anyway, <clears throat> my bad there. Just, yeah, I don't know. The Marvel thing just drives me nuts. I continue reading. I continue hoping for the best. I continue enjoying what I can enjoy, but just from a from a mechanical standpoint... I, I am amazed that we are still getting issues without them saying, okay, this series is going to go on like a six-month hiatus because we can't get our sh** together. I'm amazed we haven't have giant hiatuses yet. Um, but anyway. I can't anyway. get my sh** together. I'm so tired. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Oh, my God. They could not get their sh** together with super glue. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. Okay. I'm sure Mark is having This no, like- mess is cute. <laughs> Mark's going to have to, like, mute himself and curl up on a fetal ball on the floor as I read the next email because he's not oh, going to be able to stop laughing. But that's okay. That's okay. Because sometimes we need a little personal time. Okay. And our last one. Uh, with, appropriately, the subject line thank you and rant. Here we go. Uh, but not on our own. Sandro George writes and says, Hello, Nathan. Hello, Mark. I just wanted to thank you for selecting me as the winner of the copy of Thrawn by Timothy Zahn. I've been listening to your show for years, and Star Wars Beyond the Films is my number one podcast that I listen to. Just wanted once again to say that you and you guys are awesome. Now for my rant on Star Wars. I've been a Star Wars fan since I was a kid. I'm 40 now, and I started reading the books back in 1997 with my first book being *I Jedi*. I fell in love with the expanded universe, legends, just like you two and others. We all had a love-slash-hate relationship with the books. You had great stories and bad ones, but we always enjoyed the multitudes of stories coming from the galaxy far, far away. That being said, the current state of Star Wars needs to change. They need to get out of the 50-plus year span that is the Imperial Era. I know, I know. That's where the story started, but that's what we as Star Wars fans loved about the expanded universe, the timeline that was all the books, comics, and reference books. Star Wars went back into the past with Tales of the Jedi, which introduced us to Exar Kun and Ulik Keldroma and Nomi Sunrider. The origin stories of the past gave us dynamic characters like Revan and Bastila Shan. Star Wars even went way back to the pre-Republic era with the short-lived Dawn of the Jedi series. They jumped forward in time with the greatest Star Wars comic series, Legacy, with Cade Skywalker. With all that said, it's time for the current canon to stop playing it safe and staying with familiar characters, i.e., Vader, Luke, Leia, etc. I was so happy when Rogue One came out because they took a risk and introduced an entire cast of new characters and people loved it. Yes, I know Episode 7 introduced Rey, Finn, and Poe, but you still had the safety of Luke, Leia, and Han. Okay, I know the movies going forward will stick with the old Rebels vs. Empire scenario. It's just the Resistance versus the First Order. In the Expanded Universe, it was the New Republic versus the Imperial Remnant. But it's all still the same era. I'd like to see them create a new animated series that uses real CG like the cutscenes in the Old Republic MMO. It's not like Disney doesn't have the money. That would be awesome. But delve back into the past... If they want to stick with the familiar character, do a Yoda origin story. Number one, we still don't have a name for his species. Number two, he's 800 years old, and that's a lot of stories to tell. Okay, my rant is over. Thank you both for taking your time and effort in doing this as a labor of love, especially Nathan. I have a version of the Star Wars Timeline Gold, and all I can say is, wow. Great podcast. Keep doing what you're doing. Sincerely, Sandro George.
1: Indeed, I had. I still remember the first time I printed out one of those timelines. I didn't even know anything about this Nathan P. Butler <laughs> cat, and <laughs> oh, I was those, just like, "Those poor trees." Oh man, I, I do my poor printer, man. I had to go out and buy more ink. I had no paper. I was <laughs> doubling them over on each side. Got it all mixed up. It <laughs> was a nightmare. I was so not prepared. In fact, and, and I just got your uh, 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 Saga on Home Video book and. Damn, son! The details you put in that too—I love the little asterisks at the bottom. Like almost every page is like a little added little tidbit. I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun. <laughs> now, Sandro, I have got to say, my man, I Jedi as your first book. That is a story I want to hear. I want to hear your experience after reading that. Like, next time we see each other or maybe your next feedback, like, I want to know, you know, where that left you. You know, what was the impressionable Sandro thinking after that moment? I mean, I, that's one of my favorite books aside from Star by Star, which came much later. So I, Jedi had a really good run as my favorite all time book. So I, I would, yeah, like I said, I would love to know more about that. Uh, and what you say about getting out of the Imperial era. You know that resonates with me because after we left that era in Legends, that's when I really enjoyed more of the stories. I, I want to say like the only book that really kind of went back to that that Empire versus Rebel thing that I enjoyed was the uh, was it the ninth or the eighth book in the Rogue Squadron series where Wedge and them went to Agamar or whatever planet it was and there was a it was like four of the Rebel pilots and four of the Imperial pilots and and they were competing against like but that was set further along where it was kind of like out of the regular going back to it. At that point, it was like the Imperial remnant was trying to be its own government. It was trying to play along nicely with the Galactic Alliance kind of thing, or maybe I'm off in how I remember that, but I just, that, that getting out of that era, like, I don't know. It seems like the, the Roddenberry effect for me, you know, in Trek, I like Trek more when Roddenberry got out of it and other people got involved, the people that really loved the idea of what Star Trek was. And I always felt like that was the same thing with Star Wars, that Lucas created this great universe. And, and after that, it, he was more into, you know, what can I create with this? And he would create new things out of what was there, whereas the other fans, they saw what was there and they wanted to create new things with what was there, not recreate it all the time. So, I don't know. For me, like, that that resonates as well.
0: I find they definitely do need to get into more eras of storytelling. Hopefully that will come soon. I think there's a misconception because it took a long time for us to get, say, Dawn of the Jedi And before that, Star Wars Legacy, and and eventually getting to the point where, you know, it was after the Bantam era where we finally got New Jedi Order, Legacy of the Force, Fate of the Jedi and such. I think there's a misconception of, well, you know, the Legends continuity, yeah, they went far into, you know, they went into the far future, they went into the far past, but that was something that happened later. That was something that happened after a long time of already having a bunch of stories in other eras. But no, Tales of the Jedi was one of the early comic series produced by Dark Horse for Star Wars. Not the first, but one of the handful of the first ones that were original material rather than being just reprints of the old newspaper strips. So, I mean, they were taking those chances early on, but I think that, to me at least, my guess would be as to how they're approaching this, I think it has to do with the difference between how Lucasfilm and the story group is approaching Star Wars versus how Lucas did. And a lot of times, I would say the story group has a potential to have a stronger approach than when Lucas was in charge because they are at least paying attention to the various things that are out there. So hopefully there won't be a ton of contradictions. And hopefully, you know, we will wind up in a situation where we don't have a bunch of wrecking balls coming through like, oh yeah, by the way, Anakin had a Padawan. (laughs) Enjoy. Oh, it's going to screw up 3 years worth of stories and tons of comics and books. <laughs> it's my saga, eat it. You know, and having to retcon things like that. Hopefully, we won't have the big changes because those who are sort of the Lucas now and those who are actually producing the licensed works are theoretically working significantly closer together with sort of a shared if not vision than at least trying to make sure that, you know, there's sort of a plan. But one thing that Lucas did that I think it it, it wound up When it went away, it's actually what caused some of the issues with Clone Wars to some degree, or actually to a large degree, I would say. Um, But early on, it was frustrating to us, but now looks like one thing that perhaps was sort of a saving grace in terms of allowing them to move into other eras. And that's that Lucas initially, when the expanded universe launched in 1991, gave Lucasfilm uh, and the people overseeing the continuity certain time periods they were not allowed to go into they were blocked from doing anything with the Clone Wars at first. It wasn't until when we got to the point where we were going into Attack of the Clones as a film that Lucas said, yeah, go ahead, make some comics, make some books and stuff like that. You can actually now write in the Clone Wars period. Heck, it wasn't even until Phantom Menace that they could even really write in the prequel era because he was only unlocking it as his films were being made. The idea being that if you had a bunch of people creating stories in that time period and then he came in and wanted to do something different, it would shatter it, cause clashes, and they didn't want that mess. That's exactly what did happen with the Clone Wars era, right? It's all off-limits. It's all working smoothly. Here, you can write stories. Dark Horse comes in. Delray comes in. Oh, now Lucas wants to tell something completely different and changed his mind. That's where the wrecking ball happened. Or looking ahead towards the future. The sequel trilogy era was blocked out. I want to say it was 25 years after A New Hope, uh, or it was 25 years after Jedi, 30-ish years After A New Hope, uh, with the idea being that, you know what, after that point, you can write uh, to get there, but beyond that, nope, that's room for a sequel trilogy that Lucas might make. And eventually, when Lucas came out with the, well, I only ever meant I was going to make six. I never talked about sequels. Surely I didn't. You don't have me on the record for that or anything, do you? Then they said, oh, well, if there's only ever going to be six, there's no sequel trilogy. Now we can open it up and do something like Legacy of the Force and New Jedi Order and that sort of thing. Now we can. Play, children, play. But at first, because they knew which eras they couldn't mess with, because that's where new projects would theoretically go into It not only allowed them to play in far-flung eras, I think to a degree it encouraged it. Because it let them go to places where they could do their own thing and create their own state of the galaxy without having to worry about what's happening in the prequels, for instance. So, prequels may get made someday, but we can tell stories thousands of years before, and it's all good because even that won't directly impact the prequels, hopefully, enough so that it all still winds up working. Or let's jump a thousand or two thousand years into the future, or whatever. With the story group, it doesn't seem like they're putting anything off-limits. And in doing so, that means that any era, any subject, any characters, any topic is possibly fair game for some big thing they want to do in the future. So they can't do anything epic most of the time in the books or comics or anything like that because it may be, you know, stepping on the toes of something they want to do in a film. But they also can't really do anything groundbreaking in a particular other era, because for all we know, they may someday decide they want to do a movie or a TV series in that era. And it's that sort of caution, saying, since we might want to play with it, you can't do anything. Well, I mean, they did that before. But in saying, since we might want to do something here, you can't do it. In saying that, it made everything else fair game. But they're not delineating anything right now. So really, nothing is fair game. I'd love to see sort of the the story group put together, which you might think of as like a 10-year, 15-year, or whatever year plan of just what eras they want to flesh out, set some off and say you can't make stories in this and then allow the licensees to do some far-flung tales outside of those boundaries like happened with Legends. But they haven't done it yet. If everything is fair game
1: then nothing is fair game, in essence. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, actually. And, you know, that, I think, too, was was one of the things that when Lucas opened that up, that was probably the biggest mistake that he could have ever done and the biggest pain for EU fans because that did a lot of the continuity damage that it gets a lot of hits for. <laughs> Ah, pretend well now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom and a huge Starkiller base size thank you to our editor Michael Yankovic for applying his editing, mixing and mastering skills each episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films for your listening entertainment and for helping keeping us going dude seriously we love you bro and remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website Second Airborne Division of Podcast at www.starersreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it, especially a positive one They go farther. Uh, you can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is the best way to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWB on films at Star dot com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsor, Audible. If you go to audible.com, that's www.audibletrial.com, slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe, the expanded universe, or the Harry Potter universe, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book to flat-out hate, because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, or you just don't have time to read a book right now, Audible just might be right for you. Hey, Andrew liked it! Yeah! If it's good enough for our man Jackson, it's good enough for you! So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the force be with
0: you. And don't court us the odds that next time we do a feedback episode, we won't have any
1: hanging on from, you know, a year ago. Mm -hmm. Or what are the odds that we get just so into diversity and other things that we just put our foot deep down our own throat? I'll probably do it. I don't think that's anatomically possible. (laughs) I'll find a way. Much
0: like many of the things that's, nah, I'm not going to do a Scaramucci joke. Never mind. No Scaramucci (laughs) jokes. No.
1: Oh, uh, you you didn't see the one about the cu- the milk with the expiration nope, date? <laughs> it's nope, still fresh? Nope,
0: it's fine. It's fine. I just. Uh, uh, I want to find. Have Jabba at one point in Hut is being like, Hey, I'm not like Zero. I don't try to suck my own tail.
1: <laughs> hey, what are you trying to say, Jabba? <laughs>